What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I am joined by Rick Battenberg, founder and chief investment officer at Clientel Capital, where they specialize in the vice industry. We take a dive into some of the struggles of the companies in the cannabis industry run into, and then we take a dive into sports gambling companies. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is not financial advice and should be taken as entertainment purposes only and is strictly the opinion of Rick and myself. So please, please, please remember, ladies and gents, not financial advice, not financial advice, not financial advice. And lastly, thank you for tuning in. Please, if you're listening on audio, give this a five-star rating wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe so you get this straight to your feed. And be sure to check out my YouTube if you want to see the video version of this. You can search Green Candle, like the video, subscribe to the channel as I'm trying to get that to grow. And your support is greatly appreciated. So now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. So I'd like to thank everybody tuning in and streaming sats on any podcasting 2.0 apps. Those are really appreciated. I do this one recorded, so I don't read the boosts all the time on the show, but I do read them and I appreciate all the comments and feedback. And if you're listening on audio or watching on video, please like and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. But I got a very special guest. I got Rick Battenberg, founder and chief investment officer at Clientele Capital, a VC firm specializing in the vice category. So we're going to have a little interesting conversation here today. So Rick, how you doing, man? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Very, uh, very grateful for the opportunity. Of course, of course. So for those in the audience who don't know much about you, I did a little quick intro, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, you know, so I spent uh, about three and a half years at Merrill Lynch uh, doing a lot of syndicate work, uh, new issue, IPO stuff, uh, managing some money over there. And then uh, in 2015, left uh, the, the big finance side and went more hands-on. Um, I was happy to be in Colorado and really saw an opportunity in cannabis, especially from the financial structuring side that I could ignore. So, um, you know, formed a uh, blind pool uh, venture fund that actually became the first qualified institutional fund in the country to hold a license inside of um, a venture fund structure uh, with a qualified institutional uh, status from the state of Colorado. Um, and the reason I did that was really because I knew that regulations were going to change and so I wanted to create the most flexible funding instrument that I possibly could uh, to allow outside investors, high net worth people to invest into cannabis uh, without necessarily all of the exposure on licensing, you know, getting your name on, on a lot of lists. Um, so that went fairly well. Um, I say fairly well because I fell flat on my face right the moment that I that I started the VC firm. I was so cocky. I thought I could raise a bunch of money like right away um, come out, coming out of Merrill Lynch. And I like failed horribly for the first couple of years. Um, and then I was able to finally, you know, start raising money into into this fund. 
uh, to essentially create a diligence baseline on cannabis. And that was really the key, right? So there's a supply chain of cannabis and every, every uh, state has its own little Keynesian economic, you know, theory. So because you can't move THC over state lines, every state develops, you know, independently. So uh, we owned everything. So grow extraction, dispensary, packaging, hardware, compliance, training, you name it. We owned a company funded, funded, founded, bought, started, whatever. We're involved in every part of the supply chain of cannabis. And really the point of that was to have a very in-depth understanding and diligence information on what it took to do the business. And then around 2019 is really when we went, okay, I think we understand what's going on. We, we have a, a, a clear path. We understand how we want to assess the cannabis market. Um, and for us, that was in brand and distribution. So the, the metaphor I always like to use is you don't necessarily want to own the, the farms that are growing the grain for the gray goose. Uh, and you don't necessarily want to own the liquor store that only has uh, geographic loyalty, right? You really want to own the brand and the relationship with the uh, distribution partners. So uh, that entered the clear. So in 2017, we found the brand, the clear, which was a brand that was invented in 2013 by uh, Chris Barone, Courtney Maltese, uh, Brian Maltese and Chase Martin. And these four genius human beings um, came up with the first distillate. That's why it's called the clear was because it was the first time anyone had ever seen you know, pure distillate. It was called the clear colloquially like Kleenex because they didn't know what to call it. Um, and when we found that brand, we realized we had something special because it, it, it had become so popular in the California medical market without any real like hype, right? There was no marketing. There's no marketing around cannabis, as you know. Uh, so we knew that the product itself and in, in its roots were really good. Um, and so from there, it all came down to how do we structure this so that we can um, scale it, right? And uh, that's really where, where uh, Clear Cannabis Inc. came into form around 2019 when we consolidated all of the pieces of the parts that are needed to facilitate the safe distribution of a clean, reliable, consistent product over state lines, um, meaning a lot of that diligence work that I was talking about earlier, right? We consolidated those companies as part of a 351 transaction um, to basically consolidate the infrastructure necessary to facilitate that distribution. Um, and Clear Cannabis Inc. was formed. So Clear Cannabis Inc. is really how we assess the cannabis market. And uh, that's through intellectual property, uh, brand identity, and through, uh, you know, providing clean, reliable, consistent uh, product to people across the country. So from LA, Vegas, Detroit, you know, St. Louis, Boston, Denver, you buy a blue Raz pen. It is exactly a blue Raz pen, right? Which, you know, on its face sounds kind of simple, but uh, because of the, uh, ridiculous regulations in uh, in cannabis where you can't take THC over state lines. Uh, it's a it's a really difficult um, thing to pull off, <laughs> frankly. 
because you know traditionally in a business you would make something in one place and that way you get consistency and you distribute everywhere uh, whereas we have to recreate infrastructure in every state to reproduce the same results with an organic product that even grown under identical conditions even genetically identical plants will produce different relative weight to volumes of minor and major major cannabinoid and terpene profiles meaning you don't have the same product right so the only way to produce a brand and or a consistent product experience uh, is to post-process the plant uh, and create consistency around that which has been a um, you know what we've been doing since day one so that was really the 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 approach that we took when we said, okay, we're going to do cannabis. So we think that delivering a clean, reliable, and consistent product to, uh, to the United States, um, this is how we're going to do it. So the clear distributes, uh, uh, vapes, edibles, pre-rolls, um, you know, in, in 10 different, uh, territories right now. And, um, you know, I helped direct the capital strategy, corporate governance, um, investor relations and sit on the board of directors uh to kind of oversee those components but uh i i know that was a very long answer uh to your question but that that's uh that's really the truth that's how we got here yeah awesome stuff i mean you skipped the, the hockey background though rick i mean why don't you go into a little bit of that i know you you got a team out there as well so dive into a little bit because i mean work i'm trying to peel back the layers here you got a lot of stuff going on you know i will dive into a little bit of the difficulties that you've had you know, maybe raising capital and, you know, the difficulties in the cannabis market. But uh, tell us about the hockey team. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, so, you know, the reason that you and I met, right, was through uh, through hockey. And uh, um, so I played college hockey and then uh, decided to go work for Merrill Lynch and sell my soul instead of trying to pursue professional hockey uh, after college. And, uh, you know, I'm, I remember sitting on the bench like 10 30 at night on a Tuesday playing men's league and watching some very talented hockey players phone it in. And I was just like, fuck this. <laughs> like I hate this. Uh, it wasn't hockey to me. So, um, you know, a friend of mine invited me to go play an exhibition game against the Vale Yeti. Um, and, uh, I remember calling him on the phone and talking to him and he goes, you know, do I need to bring my shoulder pads? He goes, Oh yeah, bring your shoulder pads. And I go, okay. So I go up and uh, I remember walking in the rink, this is about 10 years ago, uh, to play against the Vale Yeti. And I never even heard of the Vale Yeti, but I walk in, there's 2000 people in the stands, right? And it's senior A, right? Now I played my junior hockey and you know, after high school, before college in, in Canada, right? In small town, Canada. So uh, all over Canada, you know, moved to Squamish, <laughs> British Columbia. And then I lived all over Canada, although I made it all the way to New Brunswick. And I'd live in these towns and I finished my uh, junior career in Campbellton, New Brunswick, which is, you know, where Quebec and New Brunswick meet. And it's not even the Eastern time zone. It's the Atlantic time zone. It's cold as shit. It's like negative <laughs> 40. Um, but there was like 7,000 people in the, in the town. Rink sat 4,000 people. It was sold out. So there's a very limited market or like contained market. And on a Friday and Saturday night, that's what you did. You went to the hockey game. Um, so, uh, you know, I knew that that kind of business uh, strategy, if you will, would work in a limited market. Um, and so, you know, I saw it working in Vail. And then I, uh, I actually called the owner of Vail and asked him if I could bring my own exhibition team up to play against him. 
And he was like, yeah, of course. Right. And now knowing what I know now, he's like, of course, it's, more, you know, it's just revenue for him. He's like, yeah, come up. <laughs> um, but at the time I was like all very sheepish. I was like, can I do this? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> you can do this. Uh, and then I, I found, uh, I found Breckenridge and I, I grew up kind of skiing in Breckenridge and it was uh, you know, limited market, the rink's the right size. Uh, they got a good youth program. And so uh, I bought the ice and I, I remember sitting in the, I remember sitting in the rink with the ice manager and I was just remember sitting there going, yeah, well, you know, like we might have fans cause you know, I got to pay for the ice, blah, blah, you know? And, and the truth is I really just wanted to play good hockey again, right. At a competitive level. Um, but you know, there's something about hockey that it, it builds community and um, it's important to people. So, you know, I, I believe that real hockey players, want to compete against somebody that's trying to do everything they can to beat them. Um, and that when you're brought up in the crucible, like most of us are as hockey players and you start when you're three, um, it's part of, part of your being, it's part of your, you know, who you are is to compete. And uh, men's league wasn't doing that for me. So I wanted to compete again, right. At the highest level that I was capable. Uh, and uh, so I bought the ice and I started, you know, marketing the team. And, and so nine years later, uh, you know, we actually playing against the Sun Valley Suns here in uh, uh, tomorrow night. So the Mountain Hockey League is a uh, the senior A uh, league here out in the Rockies that I, uh, I unfortunately am now the commissioner of that league now as well. So uh, somebody had to do it. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's a lot of really talented hockey players, a lot of, you know, ex-Div 1, NHL, a lot, of, a lot of guys that really love the game that we still want to compete, uh, you know, playing Friday, Saturday nights. It's a good hockey game. It's a very senior A culture. And I learned the business playing junior hockey in Canada. Uh, but, you know, you put good hockey on the ice, you know, cheap beer and hockey fights on a Friday night uh, in a limited market in a cold ski town, you know, things work. So. Uh, you know, put the people, ideas and resources together to create value uh, and create community. So that's what the hockey team is, is, is really a passion project of mine. And, and really in, in <laughs> getting to my head is just because I wanted to play good hockey again. Um, but uh, it's been amazing to watch the community, you know, uh, build around the team and, and everything that uh, it's been able to do for, you know, the youth organization and the, you know, the town itself and the culture and, you know, creating, creating economy in, in, uh, in Breckenridge. So, you know, that's, that's the hockey thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. I mean, owner, founder, player now. So, I mean, Jackie like, Moon, baby. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to say. Am I talking to Rick or am I talking to Jackie Moon, man? You're marketing. Next thing you know, you're going to be I'll in the put sun. on the sun outfit. Yeah. Right? Like, get across the ice like that and all that. But, uh, overall awesome stuff. You know, I, I think there's a, you know, a great, you know, kind of uh, duality when it comes to sports and business, right? I mean, you, you go through hardships, you go through failure, and you kind of learn from those mistakes to build on better. Um, so, I mean, you know, we, we talked a little bit before this about some of the struggles that the cannabis industry is, you know, kind of facing now, sure. uh, you know, as it's kind of scaling. Obviously, you know, there's the two biggest industries that I seems like that are uh, kind of like legalizing state by state are, you know, cannabis and gambling. And it seems like they each kind of have their own unique, uh, you know, roadblocks when it comes to each state level. So, um, you know, what are kind of some of the roadblocks that you're seeing for cannabis companies as it comes on? You know, obviously you, you guys can't really distribute across state lines and other things like that. So, you know, what are some of the problems and, and issues that you're seeing right now in that industry? 
Well, so, I mean, it really kind of boiled down to, to you know, the unfair taxation policy of uh, a tax code called 280E, which is uh, doesn't allow cannabis businesses to take traditional business deductions against their top line revenue. So to put that in perspective, essentially, um, 280E was a tax code that was created so that, uh, you know, El Chapo couldn't write down his uh, the rubber bands he was using to count his money. Um, but unfortunately, because uh, cannabis is a Schedule One drug, uh, it applies to cannabis, which means that essentially if it's not a direct cost of good, uh, so that means rent, labor, insurance, you know, marketing, sale, anything that's not a direct cost of good can't be written off against your, uh, you know, your top line revenue as far as your taxable net revenue. So uh, it brings the effective tax rate uh, up to 70, 80% on legal cannabis businesses at the federal level, which is just preposterous. And when I talk to real business people, they think I'm like making it up and it's, it's, it is devastating and it is preposterous, but it is real. Um, and so that's really what's going on. And what's strangling the cannabis industry right now is that, is that tax code. Um, that's the biggest, I say, infrastructure thing that is, that is really, um, cannibalizing the, con the, the cannabis industry in general, uh, just because of the unfair taxation, uh, beyond that, right. There's no interstate trade commerce, but again, that's just a scale problem, right? So you have individual Keynesian economics in every, in every state because right. THC has to stay in the state, right? So I'm not going to say interstate trade commerce is going to save the cannabis industry or not save the cannabis industry. It might save some states that over licensed, right? But doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to save the cannabis industry. It's actually fucking irrelevant. It just changes the score, right? You have supply and demand, right? And right now you've got it limited. And if you open the doors, then now it's unlimited, right? So you're either competing with your state or you're competing with the world, period, right? So uh, interstate trade commerce is not the, uh, you know, gold, you know, the white knight. Uh, and frankly, without federal legalization or a federal oversight program, you know, interstate trade commerce is markedly illegal, right? Because if one state citizen sues another state citizen, it's immediately a federal issue, right? Which means that we would need federal governance over the cannabis industry in general, which we do not have right now, right? So what we have right now are the feds, which are collecting a disproportionate amount of tax revenue based off of uh, what the cannabis companies are actually making with them spending zero money to regulate it. Right. So you're sort of at an impasse. Right. So you've got all the politicians are already making the money and not spending any money to regulate it. Right. All the states are having to spend all the money to regulate it. So essentially, the states are overtaxing themselves. Right. Overtaxing their their producers and the feds are taxing the cannabis industry. Uh, so the states have to tax the uh, cannabis industry to regulate it. Right. And the feds are, you know taxing the cannabis industry at that preposterous rate because of the application 280E, okay, uh, and not spending any money to regulate it. So there's no fiscal reason, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, to legalize it, right? That's the biggest problem, right? The pressure to do something at Congress is really coming from the Democrats and the social justice component, right, which I'm absolutely all for. It's unfair how people have been prosecuted and still to this day are being prosecuted for cannabis. Um, but unfortunately there's not, a, there's not money behind it. 
right? The Last Prisoner Project. There's there's a lot of great, uh, you know, programs and and movements that are markedly correct, right? Like socially correct, in my opinion, obviously subjectively. Uh, but unfortunately, things change when rich guys and ties make money. And the social equity component of legalizing cannabis, nobody makes any extra money. In fact, they stand to lose money by legalizing it because 280E wasn't applicable anymore. And suddenly they're collecting less tax revenue. Now, that might not matter because they're taxing it to death, literally, like 95% of cannabis businesses in the U.S. lost money last year because of the tax code. So, you know, cannabis businesses are doing a bunch of different things, right? We've seen very creative financing, right, where people are, you know, essentially moving money from a licensed business to a unlicensed business via rent, you know, like structuring, right, to try to uh, obfuscate 280E, right? You've seen some of the big MSOs, especially the publicly traded ones, uh, that are just not paying, right? They're just waiting for to get reciprocity, or I guess what would be the correct term, reciprocity is probably not it, uh, but retroactively effective um, relief, tax relief for this unfair application. But you know, when we didn't see anything during the lame duck session of Congress uh, in 2022, 2023, uh, I think the cannabis industry as a whole was really holding their breath for that lame duck session. They that you know, Pearl Mutter out of Colorado, there were some, there were some senators that had made some big promises that really thought they could get something jammed through. And when we didn't see that collectively, I think the cannabis industry was like, shit, <laughs> well, what now? Right. Um, so, you know, you got to find a way to be profitable in an extraordinarily challenging environment. Cannabis is an extraordinarily challenging environment to be profitable in. Uh, you know, you've got overregulation, overtaxation, right? And you've got an environment where you've got margin compression uh, and you don't have access to traditional financing, which means that scaling your own business is either you're taking on high interest debt from, you know, predatory debt funds, right? That have a 12% hurdle that they're trying to you know, make their, their, their portfolio holders, a uh, 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 income on, or, uh, you know, you're doing bad equity deals where you're giving away the whole company. So a lot of these cannabis companies have hamstrung themselves with their capital position over the last six, eight years, expecting this, uh, you know, black swan event of a federal legalization or descheduling or whatever it might be, uh, to kind of ease restrictions on the both tax situation and on the banking. Uh, and when I say banking, I don't mean checking accounts, right? Like we've been use checking accounts, you ACH transfers. What we're really talking about is your ability to have like a working capital line or, uh, you know, finance your, you know, an investment bank uh, to be able to fund growth. And right now that's all been privately funded. And not only has it been privately funded until this point, but all of that private funding has yet to see a return because we haven't seen a change in that regulation, right? Still being strangled by the tax code uh, and the lack of progress on the regulatory component, right? So all of these huge bets you've seen from the MSOs, some of these big, big companies that were basically trying to uh, correlate uncorrelated assets. And when I say that, I mean, you're buying up 
and, you know, grows, extractions, dispensaries, whatever you're buying up. Uh, but those assets had nothing to do with one another. They were just buying revenue, right, to try to get their valuation to catch up to, uh, to the multiple that we were seeing in the cannabis industry because it was so hot, right? 2018, uh, you know, we're seeing like 136 times forward revenue as a valuation. You know, now we're seeing them all come back down to earth. But what's interesting, right, and why cannabis companies are super undervalued right now is you're seeing, oh, guess what? All the revenue, these companies have become more efficient, right? They're making more revenue. They're doing it better, right? Because guess what? The cannabis industry is maturing. There's attrition of the players that can't hack it and uh, consolidation of the ones that, uh, you know, maybe have something, but were structured incorrectly. So, you know. It's going to be a tough couple of years in the cannabis industry. I think uh, the the we've got a Forrest Gump situation, as I like to say. Uh, you know, there's going to be a few boats left, but there's going to be a lot of shrimp for the few boats left. So, I, mean, I guess uh, you know our portfolio company, The Clear, is uh, trying to be one of those boats. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it is interesting, right? I mean, like you said, it, it's like no regulation essentially or you know state by state regulation but it's getting taxed out the ass basically but like where's the where's the movement from here is it to essentially just try to get it federally legalized or is it try to get it you know maybe looked at a little bit more like an alcohol or you know tobacco companies so, or something like that so you know like 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 anything there's a million ways to skin the cat right like you can do it a bunch of different ways and then again you know you're familiar, you know, you've seen, you've seen the cartoon on how a bill becomes a law, right? So there's a bunch of people trying to do it different ways, right? There's a bunch of mechanisms, you know, through the courts, through uh, the IRS, they're through, you know, rescheduling cannabis, the FDA can reschedule cannabis right now it's a schedule one, it could be schedule three or four or not scheduled. And all of a sudden, that tax code doesn't apply. And then banks could bank it right? You could get federal legalization. We could get an excise tax like we do on alcohol, where we get a sticker. The feds would have to regulate that. There's a bunch of different ways this could go down. But um, what I'm going to point your attention back to is that there's nobody really incentivized to move on this, right? Because they're already getting paid, right? The feds are already getting paid, right? The only people that want to see federal legalization is the cannabis industry, and the people in jail for cannabis unjustly, right? Both of which take money out of the pockets of the guys that are in control, period, okay? Right, so you got people coming out of private prisons, right? Or you've got, uh, you know, social equity uh, uh, people that are, that are unfortunately, right? They've got no leverage with the government because they don't have big lobbying budgets, right? Because they've been put in that, that position. So um, it's an unfortunate situation is really the truth. It's a, it's a sad situation. So, um, you know, what the cannabis industry needs to do is kind of come together and, and uh, batten down the hatches, you know, do everything you can to be profitable and, uh, and, and run a very tight, tight ship. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, people like yourself and, uh, you know, people that are, are, are singing the song, are going to listen, you know, got to have Congress people listen. We really need the, the tax code to change so that uh, the cannabis industry can continue to grow and flourish because, you know, sincerely, the way it's structured right now will kill the cannabis industry. It's strangling it to death. Um, it's, it's almost impossible to be profitable. So uh, unless something changes, 
uh, it's going to continue to, you know, you're going to see tax revenue go down because you're going to see, you know, revenue go down because people are going out of business. Yeah. And I mean, you, you made an interesting point there about cannabis companies figuring out how to make money. And, you know, my kind of point or question to that is, you know, as somebody who's raising venture capital for a lot of these companies or, you know, maybe looking at deals, looking at some startups, companies trying to get into the cannabis space, what have you, you know, all the different stages. Sure. I think it's a pretty interesting time now because it seems like, you know, when cannabis was kind of first starting to get legalized in states, you know, the economy was kind of booming, right? I mean, we, we had that decade long ish of growth. Um, you know, there's you know tiny details here or there, 2018, 19 time when Jerome Powell and the Fed were raising rates, had a little bit of a, of a harder time raising money during then, but, you know, he quickly pulled back. Well, you know, we're kind of in a different scenario now where obviously we're, we're having massive amounts of inflation. Jerome Powell and the Fed are raising interest rates at a record pace. Um, yep. And kind of, you know, essentially said higher for longer. They're going to, you know, my theory is they're going to keep raising rates throughout the end of the year. Yep. Um, so somebody that's trying to raise money for companies and, you know, knowing all that and knowing that a lot of these, you know, cannabis companies are you know, struggling to raise or struggling to earn a profit. You know, how is that conversation going along with like other investors and trying to, you know, start to raise some capital for it's not well. Not well. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm, I'm, I'm not jealous of your job. Here's, right. here's the truth. Here's the truth is that there's never been a tougher climate to raise money in cannabis or actually, in, in my opinion, uh, in, in venture in the last 10 years. Uh, so, you know, the commodity of venture capital, in my opinion, is hope. Okay. So people have to hope there needs to be optimism, right? That Somebody has an idea, they think it can work, they think it can change the world, they think it can change the market, di differentiate, it can be a whatever. And uh, people aren't as hopeful right now. So what creates economy from a macroeconomic perspective is not necessarily the amount of money, but it's the amount of transactions, it's the velocity of capital. And what we're seeing, right, when people aren't hopeful, they're scared, they make decisions slower, which means that the capital moves slower, which means there's less transactions, right, which means that um, the action, right? The, the velocity of capital in the economy slows down and we see a compressing market. And that's what we're seeing right now. Um, and especially in cannabis, because people aren't hopeful, right? What was, what was driving the cannabis industry was this hope, right? The hope that regulations are going to continue to change and hope that, you know, 280 is going to go away and the hope that, blah, 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 right. And there was this kind of this, you can't, you know, the, the, the bell after the um, lame duck session expired with no movement on 280E, uh, was very disheartening for the cannabis industry, right? So a lot of people got less hopeful uh, because nothing changed. And because the game didn't change, the hope kind of uh, you know, decreased and therefore, uh, you know, it becomes less, uh, less, less of a lift or sorry, more of a lift, I guess, to, to invest in a cannabis industry because there's less hope. Um, so you know, it's going to be hard for a while in cannabis. It's going to be hard everywhere. I think for, for a while we have a compressing market, um, absent some sort of a black swan event, but, uh, you know, all markets go through ups and downs. I don't think cannabis is going anywhere, obviously, uh, you know, it's been around thousands of years and it'll be around for thousands of years more. Uh, it really just comes down to the same thing it always has been, which is your ability to navigate a ever changing regulatory environment. Uh, and be nimble, right? Because remember, cannabis is brand new, right? It's, you know, it's, it's a decade old, um, which in the grand scheme of things is a, is a heartbeat. So uh, 
we're still in the first inning of what cannabis will become over the next hundred years. So, you know, it's got to be patient and continue to deliver value to your customer and shareholder. Um, you know, and that's what we try to do at the clear is, you know, provide clean, reliable, consistent quality products to people that want them period. Right. And keep doing, doing the job, right. Cause market share is one thing, but at the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, worrying about market share in an expanding market is a, is a dumb thing in my opinion, right. Worry about servicing your customer and, and delivering value to the people that, that are buying your product, uh, period. Right. Doesn't matter what percentage of them are, like how many are you selling to how many people, uh, doesn't matter what percentage of the whole, it really just matters that you're delivering value to the people that, uh, are, are buying your product. So that's what we try to do with the clear is deliver value, uh, period, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think it is pretty interesting because even though like all the things I kind of lined out, right. I mean, it is kind of a bleak macroeconomic future, but I mean, the one thing that that is kind of a positive out of all of this is right. You're, you're in a vice industry. So, you know, when it comes to recessions, depressions, like all that kind of stuff, tough economic times, people usually turn to their vices. So, I mean, I feel like that could be kind of a sales pitch in itself for raising money. But that's what I've been betting on. Sincerely, yeah. That's what I'm betting on. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like vice in down markets. Uh, you know, I serve on the board of directors of a company called BetBooth, uh, which is a legal gambling uh, IP company that uh, allows customers through a web app and a iPhone app and a kiosk to, uh, you know, bet on sports, but also get paid in cash, like at any bet booth kiosk, the moment that it, um, that the game wraps. So, uh, you know, gambling, legal gambling, and really, you know, I'm just a fancy drug dealer, uh, for weed, but you know, I like vice in down markets. I, and, and, and I say vice, but at the end of the day, it's this is that, these are things that people enjoy. They give them joy. They, you know, they get some sort of hope out of, right? So, you know, cannabis makes you happy and, uh, you know, gambling gives you hope, I guess, is the truth, right? It gives you some sort of excitement uh, in, in tough times. So, uh, you know, that and the hockey team. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, hey, you know, gambling at, at once. We're, we're coming up on March Madness, so this is going to drop like right in the middle of the tournament. So, I mean, that this is one of the more popular times for people to get in and gamble and, and just kind of, you know, toss a little bit here or there around. But, um, you know, I, I know you said you're investing in, you know, mostly you're focusing on the cannabis, but you're, you are in a gambling industry as well, yeah. uh, kind of going through that. So, you know, with that, you know, it seems like every other month or week or so one state is legalizing it, but there's like kind of hurdles. So for example, I'm in, I'm in Florida. So initially sports gambling was legalized here, but you know, there's a, an agreement with the Seminole tribe. I, I mean, this is all just from news articles that I know. So I'm not in the weeds of it, but uh, essentially hard rock um, was saying that they were going to almost like monopolize the entire sports gambling industry in the state of Florida and all these other apps or whatever couldn't really sure. come in except for like DraftKings or FanDuel, like the daily fantasy stuff. Sure. Um, but now those other companies are suing the state of Florida because of this monopoly that the hard rock has. So there's no sports gambling now legalized in Florida. It's kind of like on a little delay. So, you know, are you kind of seeing like, maybe not the similar kind of hurdles that you see in cannabis, but maybe some other kind of hurdles as it comes to opening up gambling, uh, you know, these ATMs and whatever um, throughout sure. the, the entire. Sure. There's, there's definitely similarities in the way that there's uh, you know, 
um, inconsistent regulatory patterns in state to state, right? Very, very simply, right? That's probably the most obvious one. Um, it's funny you mentioned Cal uh, Florida, though, because, uh, you know, Mar the Margaritaville cruise ship, um, which runs out of, oh God, I can't remember. Monica, what, is, what does it run out of? Um, it's in Florida. Is it West Palm Beach. I think West Palm Beach to um, West Palm Beach to uh, Nassau. Uh, but we actually got uh, the machines on the cruise ship and it's like some of the only legal sports betting, but it has to be in international waters. Um, but, you know, you make a strong point, which is there's a lot of um, hurry up and wait with with industries like this and in emerging markets like this. So, you know, remember, we wouldn't have the opportunity that we have in cannabis or in legal gambling if it wasn't illegal first. Right. That's the truth. Right. If it had been established by the time that you and I were born and everyone that's alive were born, these industries have been well established, just like the alcohol industry is well established. So, um, you know, I try not to uh, be too upset that it's not going as fast as I would like. Um, and you really just try to, to, to take a step back and be grateful that we have an opportunity and try to navigate it the best we can. So, um, you know, from macroeconomic perspective of legal gambling, you know, Europe is, is really, uh, you know, head and shoulders ahead of us, um, from a, from a regulatory perspective. And I say that because of the way that they've chosen to regulate it is a little more consistent and, and easier to operate for a business there. Uh, but the United States obviously represents a, a huge market uh, in the legal gambling space, which is, I believe there's 31 different sports books uh, that are operational in the United States. Uh, maybe it's 29. It's uh, right around 30. But um, they're all losing money right now. And the reason they're losing money is because to acquire the customers they're acquiring is such a huge marketing lift. And they're acquiring a very fickle customer who has all the apps, Right. And they're spending between $2,500 and $4,500 per customer to acquire them, right? Giving them free bets, free whatever it might be. Uh, and, you know, when you bet on the money line, which is, and I'm learning all this, I'm not a big sports gambler, but I've learned all this being on the board. Uh, you know, the win rate, right? Or the, the, the win rate for the house, call it, uh, you know, six to 8% if they're betting on the money line. Um, where BetBooth actually, and why I like BetBooth as a strategy is because it's really um, going after the more casual gambler that's making parlay bets, right? Where, you know, some of the data that we've seen come through the beta test on the Margaritaville cruise ships, uh, you know, these people are making six to eight way parlays, right? And they're betting, you know, 65 bucks over, you know, four or five different bets that have five different hoops to jump through where they can win big money, but you know, they're losing 90% of the time, um, which is really great for the, you know, the economics of, of, uh, of sports gambling in general, that in addition to the kiosk being a very great customer acquisition tool that costs us $0 as people are walking past it. So, um, you know, it's really comes down to yes, the cannabis industry, there's an opportunity. Yes. There's an opportunity in uh, sports betting, but um, you got to be very careful and while you're assessing those opportunities and really understand the macroeconomics um, and the competition within that, those, those spaces and how um, you know, your strategy is going to be affected based off of uh, both those macroeconomic forces and the regulatory forces, but also by uh, you know, consumer habits and, and what people want, right? So you know, it's not enough to just be a cannabis in cannabis company, right? It was in maybe 2017, uh, if you wanted to raise money, but 
now, you know, as the cannabis market has matured, you got to be better. You got to, you got to differentiate yourself in some way, uh, which, you know, comes with the maturity of any market uh, or any industry itself. So, um, you know, I don't think it's very different necessarily than, uh, you know, when you're assessing any market, but it is, uh, you know, it is novel because we've never done it before, right? No one's ever done this in cannabis. So I, I enjoy that component of it. It's, uh, you know, makes it a little bit, bit of fun trying to figure it out, right? It's always a puzzle every day. So, um, you know, that's exciting. Yeah, for sure. And and the one thing that you kind of mentioned too, which, you know, I, I listen to a lot of the, the Barstool Sports kind of podcasts and other things like that too. So, um, that, that, which was just acquired by PIN. So essentially they have a bit built-in marketing budget or marketing arm of their company, which makes money and all that kind of stuff too. So it is kind of interesting that you, you know, pointed out that, you know, a lot of these gambling companies, yeah, they're, they're giving out free bets. It's like, hey, you know, they'll make the spread like 85 points or something ridiculous where it's like, you're not even really gambling. They're just handing you free money to get on their app. They want customer acquisition. Yep. Yeah. And they're hoping that you kind of stay on, but usually people have no kind of brand loyalty there Got it. Uh, where they're essentially yeah. just kind of jumping from DraftKings, FanDuel, Barstool, wh whatever it is, yep. uh, kind of jumped from each one to each one and then pulling their money out and then maybe sticking on one, who knows, or just finding the best spread, whatever it is. So That's it's kind of interesting, the parallels between those. But um, one area that you kind of come in with all this is like you're, you're a first mover in these industries that have kind of been around, I guess. You know, gambling has been around in Vegas, I guess. And Well, see, that's what I love about Vice, though, right? Is because it's a, like we don't have to go establish a market, right? It's there. It's just becoming legal, right? That's the most beautiful thing about cannabis and, uh, you know, sports betting is that people have been betting on sports since Rome, Right. Yeah. So so it's not like we need to prove that there's a market. Right. We know there's a market. It's, you know, a little unquantifiable, but it's there and we know it's there and we have confidence that it's there. Um, so it really comes down to, OK, you know, there's a market there. Right. You know that there's customers there uh, and the, the key comes down to convenience. Right. That's really the truth is that people are inherently creatures of habit. And I, I was going to say something more derogatory, uh, I think, but I'll go with creatures of habit. Right. So they're going to do whatever is easiest. Right. So that's really what 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 uh, it boils down to is you make it convenient and, and accessible. Um, and a great example that I like to use of this is uh, with Napster. Right. So, um, you know, people started, um, you know, illegally downloading music. Right. Uh, you know, using torrents and, and Napster using the using those. Um, and it wasn't really until like Spotify came along. Right. And it just became easier to pay for it, right? And it wasn't necessarily because um, people were unwilling to pay for it. It's because the the systems and processes and infrastructure that was set up, right? Even Apple Apple Music, paying a dollar ninety nine per song, right? It was just exhaustive, right? So it was that the mechanism by which people want to assess whatever it is that they're trying to do, whether that's cannabis or whether it's sports betting, whatever whatever it is, is that you really have to make customer focused decisions, right? You have to make at the very base level, you have to think it all the way down to the human being that's going to be using this product, right? Product or service, whatever it might be, right? And you got to think it all the way down is like, are you providing value to that person? Not what is the best infrastructure for us and how do we make money, right? That, right, that has to be the component, but it has to work from the ground up, right? And so when I'm assessing these markets or these business industries or verticals, Right. I really always try to boil it down to the, the most granular 
component, which is the customer experience, right? One human being using this product, what is that experience like? And is that a valuable experience? And if you can make it work there, right? And this is, this is my big issue with crypto specifically um, and why from, you know, and I, I know you're smirking already, but this is sincerely, this is really just it, is that the soccer mom, you know, and, and uh, that's not meant to be derogatory in any way, just like, so, so let's call it, you know, an unsophisticated middle-aged human being um, who, right, doesn't understand crypto necessarily outside of what they see on the news. They, it's inaccessible to them and unusable to them, right? So it's not integrating into our existing culture, which is why right, I think we saw sort of a collapse, right? And it wasn't because crypto is not awesome. It totally is awesome, right? Is it the future? Absolutely, right? The crypto's issue was that it wasn't able to integrate within the, our existing culture, right? It wasn't able to exist within our existing infrastructure. It wasn't able to integrate into it in a way that made sense to the layman, right? And that was the, that was the problem. It's not because crypto is not better because it is better, right? It's, it's, un, it's unquantifiably better. It's unequivocal. But the problem is that it can't be simply explained and used by somebody who is not invested into the 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 process and the you know the economic theory of crypto and you know they got to buy in and there was no buy in from from you know the casual consumer user whatever it might be so it really never took took form but it was it was traded on this hype right on this on this hope right that it was better because the people who knew the people that truly understood it truly understood that it is better right but what they failed to understand is how it integrated into our existing infrastructure um and until Right. Either our existing infrastructure catches up to right the the sophistication of crypto and the value of crypto, right? Uh, or crypto is able to uh, you know basically communicate better to the existing infrastructure on the value that it's bringing to right the everyday you know soccer mom, right? And how this helps her life and how she can use crypto to better her you know existing life, right? With not changing anything she's doing, but improve her life. Um, it's still going to flounder, I think. So that's that's really, you know, in my opinion, you really have to look at it from a from a macro. But then the micro is always like the customer experience. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I agree 100. percent Whatever has the best UI UX is probably going to win, right? I mean, whether it's like social media, whether it's you know crypto, whether it's you know uh, user experience when it comes to you know buying cannabis or even sports gambling, like people are just going to gravitate to what's whatever is easiest and that kind of you know like that customer experience. Whether you know, there's a bunch of different rabbit holes we could go down there, but you know what's interesting. I think you're in the business of rabbit holes, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there's a there's a bunch of different. Are there's a bunch of similarities between the crypto, uh, cannabis, and sports gambling? But I think the biggest difference is that, like you mentioned earlier, everybody already kind of had those vices. Like it was semi legal wherever you kind of go. Like you, yep. you know, sports gambling, Vegas, obviously marijuana. You can you know, red light district, all that kind of stuff. Like people have had you know exposure to those things for quite some time. Whereas crypto is kind of a new breaking industry that just kind of like popped up out of nowhere the past like decade or decade plus. But um, back to, you know, going into the vice kind of category, being a first mover, right? You're, you're talked about cu customer experience and all that kind of stuff. So when you're like looking at analyzing deals, analyzing companies and, and kind of, uh, you know, looking at it through that lens, you know, whether they have a good product or service or what, you know, it's kind of beside the point. 
how do you, I guess, analyze a company that you really want to start raising money for? Is it more so, you know, I guess like founder base, you believe in this guy, he's going to change directions, pivot guy or girl, whatever, kind of find a way to make it work. Or are you more focused on, you know, like it has a good product or service and then we can, you know, translate it to figure out a way how to market that and make it more customer centric. I like I should have paid you to team me up for that. But no, I, no I, I, I'm a big believer in you bet on the person, not the deal, because the deal changes. Right. The person has to be have the fortitude and the, the, the resourcefulness to be the guy or gal who finds a way to, uh, you know, continue. So, you know, I always look for three main things in, in founders, startup CEOs. Um, and the first one is that they're emotionally connected to the success or failure of the project. Um, and that means that they're emotionally connected to it because um, those people will do things that people that are not emotionally connected won't. Uh, the second is that they are uniquely qualified um, and have a diversity of skill set and information that makes them uniquely qualified to assess the larger vertical they're uh, going into. So, for example, if somebody is a uh, not a seasoned CEO, but is a doctor and they come to me with a biotech deal, I'm going to like that more than a seasoned CEO coming to me with no biotech background or no doctor doctorate or, or medical background. Uh, and the third thing is that they truly understand their numbers. So that's one of the things I look for is that if a founder, CEO, startup person truly understands how they make money, and I mean that down to like the granule perspective, and this kind of heralds back to what I was saying about the customer experience and the very micro, is that, you know, how much do you make on one product? What does it cost you to produce, sell, market, and, and support one unit of your services, say a product, whatever it might be? Um, and if they have those three things, that's kind of like you got to be this tall to ride, right? And if they got those three things, then we can go, okay, well, you know, you know, do I believe in your strategy and how you're assessing the market and, um, you know, what you're going to do? But, um, you know, having done this for a while and, and most of my life uh, and seen the, the kind of growth of, of, you know, small venture companies and, and how they grow up and scale. Um, you know, the, the unifying factor always is that there's always the, the, there's a champion um, or champions, you know, never bet against a small group of uh, highly motivated uh, individuals. You know, they're rarely not the ones that, that, uh, that change the world or the ones that believe they can. So, um, you know, the small groups and, or, or people that uh, constantly are finding a way to continue or find a way to continue the business or change the business. Um, those are the type of people that I like to bet on um, sincerely because uh, the deal always changes, especially when you're, when you're dealing with emerging markets, like whether it's crypto or vice or, or um, you know, cannabis or legal betting or whatever it might be. Um, the game changes, right? The board changes constantly, right? And it's this ever developing thing where you really have to bet on the, that human being because we can't see in the future right? We can't, we can't know. I couldn't know that they weren't going to move to ADE. I was, you know, fingers crossed, toes crossed, you know, <laughs> but um, unfortunately it doesn't matter, right? I, it doesn't matter, right? So, uh, you know, you got to bet on, on the human beings. And so, you know, bet on talent, not, uh, not resumes and uh, not strategy, bet, bet on the human beings. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, the human beings are the ones like running the company, right? So I mean, no matter how good, I'm sure there's plenty of companies that we could go down the list of, you know, they had a great product, but they weren't run by the same people. And it kind of ran it into the ground people whether would like that product or service or whatnot. So, um, but coming up on, you know, the end of the episode, I want to ask you like one last question, just basically on, on your strategy for the rest of the year, are you kind of looking at 
you know, with this tougher macroeconomic, you know, uh, you don't have to show all your cards or put them all on the table or anything I mean, like that. Very cards on the table. I don't, you know, I, I believe execution is key. Ideas are dime a dozen. So I'm, I'm happy to share. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I'm just curious, like, are you, do you have like a goal in mind of you want to make X amount of deals or are you just more of, you know, as a good deal approaches, that's, that's when you're going to. I do. wish I was that organized. I am not, to uh, be honest with you. I have a very, I've got a very lovely uh, um, person that works with me. Monica Pina is a very smart and organized human being who keeps me in line. But um, <laughs> the truth is, you know, I do what I deal with what's in front of me. Uh, but, you know, Warren Buffett's got a very famous saying, you know, is, is be greedy when other people are scared. And I think a lot of people are scared right now. So I'm uh, trying to be greedy if I can, if I'm being honest with you, um, especially when you're seeing rapid attrition in the cannabis industry. Um, when times are tough, the people who are working get paid. Right. This is the time when 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 fortunes are made. And when I, I referred earlier in the episode, I told you about, you know, we have a Forrest Gump like situation. And what I mean is, you know the big storm. And this is the big storm for cannabis right now. Um, and so, uh, you know, understanding that, uh, we really haven't changed our strategy in cannabis, uh, over the past you know, eight years that we've been doing this, um, I think is, uh, vindicating, I guess, to, to watch other companies who have, you know, maybe pursued a different path and now have kind of come to the dark side, if we're the dark side, you know, but, uh, that capital light brand strategy, but, the point being, uh, I I know things are very hard right now, um, and that creates a very unique opportunity, right? So in chaos, there's opportunity, you know, Sun Tzu. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I like these conditions right now as far as being an in-venture, right? Um, if you've already made some choices where you've, uh, you know, diluted your cap table or you've taken on high interest debt, then, you, you know, you've kind of limited your options and, you know, something that might father always used to like to say to me is, uh, you know, plan to have as many options as possible. So um, I think that's a good advice, especially in the cannabis industry. And, you know, by keeping your cap table tight and undiluted and, and, and being very conscious of your cash flow and cash situation, uh, navigating these uh, more difficult and tumultuous times uh, is less stressful. Uh, so, you know, you only, you only fail when you quit, right? So it's, it's just your ability to continue that matters. And uh, especially in times like this. So, I guess, you know, keep fighting the good fight is my, my strategy in, in simple terms is just to continue. Um, and that's all, all anyone can do and all business owners can do is find a way to find a way to keep going. So, um, you know, times will get better, period. You know, of, of course they will. But, you know, who knows when. But in the meantime, you know, get to work. <laughs> Exactly right. I mean, entrepreneurs are the backbone of, the, of this great country. So, uh, Rick, you've been very generous with your time. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing everything that's going on in the cannabis vice industry and all that kind of stuff. Overall, great discussion. But um, why don't you tell the audience where they can uh, find a little bit about you and what you got going on? Sure. Uh, so clientelcapital.com, clientele with two I's, C-L-I-I-N-T-E-L capital.com uh, is usually a good place to start. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as the cannabis VC. Um, and my LinkedIn is obviously, uh, open source as well, but, you know, I'm always interested in talking to, to people, um, especially, you know, people that are passionate and, and, and have a diversity of skill set and information that, um, makes them uniquely qualified to assess a particular market. I'm always excited to talk to entrepreneurs that are full of piss vinegar and hope. I, I, I love it. It's my, my most favorite thing. I think that they're the ones that, 
you know, make the world go round are the the change makers and the, the rainmakers, the people that um, I respect the most because they have the heart of courage and they got the, uh, you know, the the willpower to to get shit done, you know, and the, those are the people that I have a deep amount of respect for the the mentors to me and the the people that I um, grateful enough to to be around are people that have that courage, right? The courage to try, you know, failure is is part of life, but um, you know, the people that have the courage to uh, try something that they don't know is going to work, um, those are the people that I, I like to be around. So, um, you know, happy to connect with anyone. I, I have a policy that drives Monica crazy that I'll take a 15 minute meeting with anybody because <laughs> I, you know, you never know uh, what they might have. And, um, you know, I, I like to I like to hear from uh, as many sources of information as I possibly can to have a larger and wider understanding. And that's a purely selfish. I loved it because I just love the data. I like, I like to hear from people and I find the most, um, the, my favorite way to learn is, is to learn, talk to somebody who is uh, both um, passionate and knowledgeable about a specific area of expertise. And when that person's willing to contextualize information to you in real time, um, knowing my you know, existing data set, that's the, really the fastest way to learn a specific subject or, or expertise is when, when somebody who is truly an expert in, in an area is passionate and excited to explain something to you. Um, and I see that a lot with the people that come and pitch me deals right? Because they first have to contextualize um, whatever vertical or industry that we're talking about. Um, and they're very motivated to do so because obviously we're trying to, trying to build something together. So, um, you know, please reach out if you, you know, piss vinegar and hope baby, let's go. Right. Let's make some, make some shit happen. I love it. And I'll link all that in the show notes, whether you're watching on YouTube or uh, show notes on all audio podcasts. So thanks, Rick. Thanks so much, man. No, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, to talk. And, you know, you've got a great show. You've brought on some amazing guests. So, you know, honored to, uh, honored to be invited. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully I didn't curse too much or anything. But you know, hey, it's not a big show. Don't worry about that. So I appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks so much, Brandon.